If you've flown much at all, you've likely, likely experienced a, a moment in a flight when they came on the intercom and said to you, uh, we're about to uh, encounter some turbulence. So for now, when you just stay in your seats, uh, keep your seatbelt on, we won't be serving anything and no refreshments during this time as we endure this bumpy air. And so you wait with some anticipation and then the plane begins to shake a bit. Now for fortunate, it's, it's very light, not many bumps to it. And other times, perhaps you've been there like me, where a flight where there's very severe turbulence that, that really shakes things up. It makes you sometimes fearful. Lots of people are sick kind of all around you. These difficult, unstable pockets of air. Friends, so it is in life. We endure individually. We endure at times at the level of society great turbulence. Times they're very rough, upheavals that seemingly overthrow, uh, upend our lives, or upend culture, or both. And in the midst of that, we sometimes wonder, how is a Christian to think during turbulent times? Does God give us a way to live well in the midst of these bumpy times? Or does Christianity only speak to days that are like today, sunny and beautiful and peaceful? Is there good news for the hard times? Is there wisdom for the hard times when every day feels like a hard time? And thankfully, this morning we'll see in the scriptures that that God's word does speak, and speaks especially to the turbulent times that we find ourselves in. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Psalms to Psalm 2. So it will be in Psalm 2 on page 448 in the Bibles we've provided for you. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app so you can see the passage in front of you this morning. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in Psalm 2. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our times as we work our way through this brief psalm. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles. Please just grab one of those Bibles and take it with you as a gift this morning. Last week, we concluded an almost two-year series through the Gospel of Matthew. And now, through the rest of July and August, we'll be looking at some selected psalms. So today, we turn to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This morning in the psalm, we'll see this emphasis. Take refuge in the sun, 
instead of rebelling. Take refuge in the Son instead of rebelling. And in this psalm, we have four stanzas. So we'll organize it on these four stanzas. So first we'll see rebellion. Second, we'll see rebuke. Third, we'll see reign. And fourth, we'll see refuge. Rebellion, rebuke, reign, and refuge. So first we see rebellion in verses 1 through 3. Historically, this has been a psalm that's understood to be written by David. And it begins with these questions. Why are the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, in an uproar? Why are they raging and why are they plotting in vain? Now, what uproar, what raging, what turbulence is the psalmist referring to? He tells us in verse 2, so look down at verse 2. He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the kings and queens, the leaders of the world, as representatives of all people, are doing something. That is, they have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. They're plotting against the Lord and his anointed. As we're trying to understand the situation, we have to consider, well, who is the one referred to here as his anointed? The Lord, that's clear to us. This is God, the covenant God. But who is the one called his anointed? What could be referring to a human king of Israel. For those kings were anointed by God. This psalm, we believe, was used as a coronation psalm uh, for the kings of Israel. But as we read it more closely, though, it would seem to be pointing to someone greater than merely a king of Israel. Because it's saying that the peoples and the nations of the earth rage against him. For, for, but because even in its greatest day, Israel was this relatively small country. Not a, a world superpower. So the idea that, that all the nations would rage against this king, or a particular king, human king of Israel, seems to be unlikely. And here the New Testament helps us to understand and interpret this psalm. Because this psalm is quoted in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. And so when we're reading the Bible and and an Old Testament passage that we're studying is quoted in the New Testament, we're always going to be helped to to look and see what do the New Testament authors say and how does that help to inform our understanding of the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter 4, we find ourselves in the earliest days after what we just finished up at the end of Matthew chapter 28. So Jesus went to the cross, he was buried, raised triumphant from the grave, he's ascended into heaven. The beginning of Acts, or just those first days after, in Jerusalem, the good news of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. So the the apostles are preaching in the streets of Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection, and proclaiming this good news, and this message was beginning to, to cause an uproar in Jerusalem. So people are hearing and believing placing their faith in Jesus as truly the anointed one, the Messiah. And we see that two of the apostles, Peter and John, were making their way to the temple, and they heal a man who was paralyzed. This then, as you might expect, causes a greater stir. What do they do? They preach. They preach to this crowd, and many come to believe. Thousands, in fact, that day. And finally, then, this stirs up the Jewish authorities in the city to to intervene, to try to bring this to a stop. And so they bring in Peter and John to question them. They try to threaten them. And and what do Peter and John do? They preach to them as well. So so everywhere they're going, uh, these guys are preaching. 
They threatened Peter and John, but here then they released them. And then just after this, Peter and John gather up with some of the believers. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24. So Peter and John with these other believers, and they're praying together. And here's their prayer. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here in this prayer, they directly quote from Psalm 2. And notice how they refer to the sovereign Lord as speaking through the mouth of David. So he's the author of the psalm. And they say, by the Holy Spirit. So here's this just subtle mentioning of what we understand about the scriptures we have being inspired by God. So David, a human author, inspired by the Spirit, writes. And when he does so, it's the very word of God that we have in our scriptures. And we want to notice how they apply this passage to their own circumstances. So they refer to the immediate context where there are kings and rulers who are working against the Lord and his anointed. And they say Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Romans, and the people of Israel were plotting against the Lord. And notice, here's who they were plotting against. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So they're saying they were plotting against Jesus. He, the anointed one, which means the Messiah, the promised, hoped for one. So here, the book of Acts interprets who is the anointed one in Psalm 2. It's Jesus Christ, God the Son, the promised Messiah. And what was their plot then when Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem? We saw that at the conclusion of Matthew. It was to put him to death. And their plot actually worked. They did put Jesus to death. And their plot was an utter failure. For through Jesus' death, Jesus paid for the sin and rebellion of sinners like us. And he didn't stay in the grave. He was raised triumphant, conquering Satan, sin, and death. So their plot ultimately failed miserably. So Peter and the apostles are giving us an example of what it looks like for people to plot against God. And they're showing us that Psalm 2 is ultimately showing us that, referring to the anointed one, is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So then coming out back to our passage in Psalm 2, when it says in verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed, we read that against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, God, the Son. So when we see this, we, we see the timelessness of this psalm. But this is not the peoples of the world primarily speaking only back then to a mere king of Israel. But it is all peoples at all times. Peoples of every nation plotting against, setting themselves against God. And Jesus, the son. In David's day, people wanted out from under God. And that continues today. 
all people in all nations, that includes every one of us, apart from Jesus, join in saying, look down at verse 3. Here's what they were saying. Let us burst their bonds apart. Cast away their cords from us. So what did they want? What did the peoples of the world want? What do we want on our own? We want freedom from all restraint. We want to do whatever it is we want to do. Whatever we feel would satisfy us, that is what we want. See this outlook dominate our world today, just as it does in every generation. Forms of it today have been described as expressive individualism, where, where most of all, what we're told to do is be true to yourself above all else. Be true to yourself. Whatever your desires are, you, you should embrace them. And in fact, our culture would say you must embrace them. And anyone or anything who would tell you not to embrace whatever your desires are, they're actually working against you. They, they don't want your good, is what the world would say. So God, the Bible, and God's people are reject, rejected because God does give some restraints to us, some very clear instructions on how we are to live in this world. I preach there's a growing stream among those who profess to be Christians who say something like this, that yes, I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, but then basically they say what Jesus most wants for me is for me to be myself and to be happy and fulfilled. And so Jesus would want for me to embrace all the desires that I have. Because of his love for me, I must embrace all of my desires. For this is attractive to so many. But it's far from what we see in the scriptures. It's far from what we saw from Jesus in the Gospels, that for he is loving, more loving than we could ever imagine. And out of love, Jesus gives to us significant restraints. Not to restrain us from joy, not to keep us from happiness, but because he knows where, where true joy and satisfaction that lasts is found. And friend, I wonder, are you trying to convince yourself of this path? that you love Jesus and Jesus loves you, but that the Jesus who loves you is saying to you, do whatever you want to do. Be whoever you want to be. Embrace all of your desires, whatever they may be. That's what Jesus wants for you. For that, I would want to caution you. And I hope you'll walk with us through this psalm to see that there's actually another way that Jesus has for us that does include some restraints, but it's restraints from, out of, his love for us. Now, many would say, who are not Christians, maybe you would say this, and if you're not a Christian, we're glad you've joined us this morning. And you might say, I don't think of myself in rebellion against God. I don't care to rebel against God. I just want God, if there is a God, to leave me alone. And I want to leave him alone. So I have no interest, so I'm not trying to fight against him. I just prefer no interaction with him. Friends, imagine a, a really good human king. And this king appropriately owns this entire area of rain. It's his land. And he's a really kind king who's provided stability and security for all who live within his kingdom. He provides for them clean water, daily food, 
gracious in all those ways, but then he does ask, if you live in my kingdom, you, you do have to live under my laws as you're in my kingdom. And many in this kingdom gladly choose to obey and embrace this goodness that he's provided, but there are some who within this kingdom say, I will not do that. What gives him the right to impose any kind of laws on me? So, so though they're happy to partake of the safety and security of this kingdom, they're happy to receive his water and his food. They, they reject his laws. And so scattered around this kingdom are little outposts of rebellion against this king. But aren't they truly in just outright rebellion? Friends, how much more... The God of the universe who created every single one of us in his image. Making every one of us image bearers with value and dignity. And he's given to every person life and breath. He owns it all. And yet he freely and graciously gives to us day by day providing for us. He actually allows us to at times run in rebellion from him. But he has said there... This is the right way to live in my world. Out of his love, he's given us commands, restraints, instructions. And so we say, I don't want to admit that, that this is yours. I don't want to admit that you made me. I don't want to follow your moral paths. I don't want anything to do with you. And fundamentally what we're doing is we too are in outright rebellion against the God of the universe. You may not be a Christian and you're wondering, well, why would I want to be under a God who gives restraints? Why would I want to live within the commands of Jesus? And I would say it's a very good and significant question. And I hope that as we walk our way through this psalm, perhaps it might begin to give some clarity to that. And we see this rebellion on an individual level, but we also see it at the level of nations, governments. Not every nation, not every leader, not every government is equally opposed to God. But, but friend, any government, any nation that's led by humans, all of us are humans, marred by sin, will be at best a very imperfect government, a very imperfect nation, while some world leaders will be just utterly evil. So all of those are true at the same time. So the fact is, we, uh, when given the opportunity in a world, in a nation, Christians can work for good. So some of you have the opportunity to, to work for good in government in this nation or in other nations. That's your homeland. It's a good and right thing for Christians to be scattered in the world and to work for good wherever we can. Simultaneously, though, we should never overestimate what any government can do. And we should never ask any government to do what only God can do. Only God can change the heart. Only God can transform. We don't believe any outside structure like a government can do that. So that's why we as Christians don't want to force religion by the sword on people. For that can change outward behavior, but it can't change the heart. Only Christ can do that. The world has been from the beginning and continues to this day to be marked by great turbulence fueled by rebellion. So we see rebellion, and then the second stanza we see rebuke in verses 4 through 6. So here we see God's response to this rebellion. Look at verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
first reading, I, I think those words probably make most of us uncomfortable. The idea of God laughing in response. What is this getting at? What is this pointing to? Well, one, as always, the psalmist is using human language that we can understand, but also that has limitations to try to describe what God is like and what God is doing. This laughing is something like, during the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire was the unquestioned empire of the region. An incredibly powerful army. So imagine during that time when the Romans reigned that that in a small little province of the empire, there was a group of 10 who banded together and said, together we will overthrow Caesar. So these 10 marched to Rome, said, we are here to confront Caesar. We will fight him now and end his reign, and the 10 of us will take over. Well, the leaders of the Roman army in Rome would have chuckled at them. I mean, I, I, are you guys serious? They're like, no, we're serious. We're here to fight and take down Caesar today. I mean, okay, if, if you want to have that fight, we can do that. But you're really outnumbered. This is not going to go well. Their, their chuckling would be one of sort of just strange, trying to figure out what is it they're doing. And don't they understand the, the difference in scale between us. And here it is, we shaking our fist at God, plotting against God, missing the magnitude of who he is. When author Derek Kidner says it this way, the only laughing matter is the arrogance itself, our arrogance, not the suffering it will cost before it ends. Friends, God is just, And he does, and he will carry out his justice, but he takes no pleasure in punishing rebels. What is God's response? We see his response in his righteous wrath in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion refers to the mountain where Jerusalem is. Sometimes the term is used interchangeably, Jerusalem, Zion, to refer to the same place. And if you think about it, it's a really interesting response. So so they're plotting against the Lord, plotting against his anointed. And what's the Lord's response? I've set my king. Okay. Is that a threat? Is that good news? What difference does it make that your king is in Zion? Does God immediately send destruction? No, he sends a king. Is it good news or bad news? We'll see in a moment. So we see God's rebuke, but then we see third, rain, verses 7 to 9. In this third stanza, the speaker changes. As we read what he says of himself, that the Lord has said of him, said of him, the speaker, you are my son, I have begotten you. And he said to him that he would give to him the nations. We wonder, is this a human king of Israel? I know these promises wouldn't make sense for merely a human king. These promises go far beyond that. This enlarges on the promises given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where God promised to David as king that there would be one from his line who would have an eternal kingdom that would reign forever. As we see at the, saw at the beginning of Matthew, the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Titus in, helps us see that Jesus, a descendant of David, 
So who's this king that is set on the holy hill? Verse 6. It's the anointed one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal king. And his inheritance and possession is the nations, the ends of the earth. The good news of Jesus' sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection is to be shared with these nations. We're sure that some from every nation and tribe and tongue will turn to Christ and worship him. So we saw last week in Matthew 28, all of us who are Christians are sent into his mission to go and tell the nations that they would know of the saving work that happened through Christ. Now we see in verse 9 that a day is coming when Jesus will return and will come in judgment of those who reject him, of those who continue in rebellion, of those who refuse his gift of salvation. But that day is in the future. Until then, now salvation is available. And how has the salvation been provided? Through Jesus Christ and his work on that holy hill. The king was set on a hill, and the pinnacle of his coming was when he was set on a cross on that hill. Friends, Jesus had come that he would be broken on a cross in our place. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us to pay for our sin, to pay for our rebellion, that his righteousness might be credited to us. Jesus Christ, the Son, chose to allow himself to be broken in order that he might save. So from the fact that the Lord set his king on the hill is good news. In the face of rebellion, the Father sent the Son to provide a way out, deliverance, salvation for rebels like us. So we see rain, and then fourthly, finally, we see refuge. Refuge in verses 10 through 12. In light of what has come before, rebellion, the judgment that we deserve, the coming of the Son, we, we wonder, well, well, does devastation come immediately? And the answer from the psalm is no. Instead, we see that God is gracious and patient with rebels. Why has Jesus not returned yet? Because God is patient. That more and more might hear and believe and turn to Christ by faith. God is patient with me and with you, patient with the world. So out of his grace and mercy, he gives us time to be wise and to heed his warning. That's what he says in verse 10. Be wise and also be warned. This warning is for the rulers, it's for the kings as representatives, but it's for all people. There's a warning, a somber warning, that because of our own rebellion, there is a coming judgment that we must be made aware of, and we have no means of escaping on our own. There is no way of averting the wrath that I deserve or you deserve through any of our own efforts, not through religious devotion, not through moral reformation on our own. But God graciously sounds this warning. We're desperately in need of salvation. And we cannot save ourselves. But this warning is an act of grace to tell us this is coming. And this warning is a gracious invitation 
So this invitation is to leave behind our lives of rebellion and turn to the Son, to Jesus Christ. So we see in verse 12, we're told to kiss the Son, referring to the Son of God. Or we could say, pay homage to the Son. Trust in Jesus, the Son, as the great saving King that he is. The gracious Son came and endured this plotting of the leaders who put him to death, chose to give himself on a cross in the place of us, that he would provide this salvation as a free gift received by faith. And as we trust in Jesus, we are rescued, and he becomes our refuge. As we see in the last line of the psalm, look at the very last line. He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So by faith, we take refuge in Jesus. We want to see that we take refuge from the wrath that we deserve because of our own rebellion, and we take refuge in Jesus Christ. In reality, there is no other refuge besides Jesus Christ, but the good news is there is a refuge, and it is Jesus Christ. And this refuge is open to any and all who would run to the refuge by faith. Friends, this is all of grace. If you think about how, how this psalm goes from the beginning, speaking of the rebellion of the nations, rebellion of all turned against God, to the very end saying, here's the answer, the blessedness of life in the refuge, which is Jesus Christ, the Son. And it is there, in him, that we find this blessedness that's referred to, the blessing of being fully forgiven through Christ. The blessing of shame and guilt erased from our lives. The blessing of being brought into the very family of God, adopted by God. Brought into the family where he is the one perfect, never failing father. And he, friends, becomes your father through Christ. Where we're given through him an eternal hope. Hope for today and hope for eternity. No longer having to be a slave to our sin and to our desires the potential for real change and progress in this life. And friends, this is the life that's really worth living. Under his wise commands, within the restraint that he's given to us, it is there actually that true freedom is found. I mentioned earlier some Christians trying to live with the love of Christ but apart from his restraints. But I hope that you'll see and maybe think more broadly the God's word, Jesus himself, just does not give us that option. If you looked only at the Gospel of Matthew, that we've just spent so much time in, Jesus gives numerous commands and instructions, prohibitions. And Jesus speaks through all the scriptures in the same sort of way. For freedom is not found outside of Jesus, but within his gracious restraints. Where he says, don't embrace this. No, choose not to follow that desire. I know it's painful. I know that desire seems to be so satisfying. But life is found in a freedom within the gracious commands of God. But the fact is, it is tempting. And those desires are so attractive at times. Friends, it's one of the many reasons we need other Christians with us. That's why we need a local church, because we can so easily, the, the stronger the desire comes, convince ourselves that this is the right path. Even convince ourselves that Jesus is for us going down this path. 
We can convince ourselves of something we never would have believed even a year ago because this desire continues to grow. So we need people who would love us enough to ask us hard questions, to remind us of what we thought and believed and what we even told them a year ago. We need people to love us enough to urge us not to try to live a life throwing off the restraints of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, continue to trust in Christ. And especially at times where your desires are contrary to God's word, trust that God's grace and love are also found in his commands and his restraints. If Jesus would purchase your salvation at the greatest of cost, is he not worthy of your trust? Even when, especially when, The world says embrace this desire and Jesus says otherwise, trust Jesus who died for you. My friend, if you're not a Christian, I can see why you might think, well, why would I want a God who puts restraints on me? Why would I want a God who gives commands on ways I'm supposed to live? And I can understand why you would wonder that. But friend, if there is a God who created all things, And if that God, out of great love, sent forth his Son, that through his death he might provide salvation, not that you earn, but that's given as a gift. I'm not saying you're convinced of that yet, but if there were such a God, and if there were such a Savior, would he not be worthy of trust if he were to say, don't pursue this path? Just then trust me with that one. I realize it's a broader conversation. So we invite you to spend time with us to the extent that you're willing and interested to consider, could there be a Savior like this? So you want to explore with us simply by attending on Sundays? We would glad, be glad for you to do that. If at some point you'd like to talk more with somebody, we would la- love to arrange a conversation like that if you're interested. If you have been considering Jesus, friend, we would urge you today, turn to Christ today by faith. And for those who are Christians, we see here the the call to be wise. And the fact is, friends, we can live wisely now. God makes us wise increasingly by the Spirit who dwells in you. God grows in wisdom through the Word, the Scriptures that He's given to us. Walking wisely means we're not surprised when the world, when leaders, when others plot against Jesus and against His church. We shouldn't be shocked if they plot against us as we seek to follow Jesus. That we don't want to be those Christians who who find opposition everywhere in everything. We also don't want to be naive. It shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't despair. We shouldn't be overwhelmed if and when opposition does come. It's always happened to God's people. We should be surprised if it doesn't happen to us in this life in some measure, so we can live wisely now. We also, as we live wisely, can rejoice. As we see in the text, rejoicing. Friend, think often on what the Son has done for you. Remember where you once were in your rebellion, the kindness of God to rescue sinners like us and to make us sons and daughters, to have our our guilt and shame wiped out, to be made righteous through Christ. Friend, rejoice in that. Treasure that. We also see a response of serving in our passage. Serving our king. Friends, serving is wise 
and fruitful living. It's a part of the blessed life is to look beyond ourselves to serve others. To, to seek to love neighbor, to love brothers and sisters. And friend, it can be tempting in the midst of the turbulence of life, when life seems overwhelming, to, to lose sight of the opportunity to serve others. So let me encourage you, look for opportunities. Intentionally plan to serve. Others are blessed, and we are blessed as we serve. And as we do so, we join in sharing this good news, which is for the world, for the nations. Friend, Jesus does not promise a smooth, turbulence-free life, but he helps us to make sense of it. He enables us to live wisely and well, even rejoicing and serving because of what our King, the Anointed One, the Son, has done for us.